Oh, Father, open our ears to hear your word this morning and give me boldness to proclaim it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, and turn with me, if you would, to our letter that we've been going over in this sermon series of 1 Peter chapter 2. And a warning up front, uh, <laughs> this is a, a jam-packed section, uh, the lesson that was read for us from 1 Peter. There are many sermons that could be preached from this. There are many things here that we could find offensive uh, and troubling to us in our current kind of cultural uh, milieu. Uh, but bear with me this morning. What I want to focus on is the main thing. That, that Peter is doing here and not get sidetracked by how we might receive it uh, or portions of it um, as modern uh, folks. And so let us gather or gather from it the core of what he's doing and allow that to shape our understanding of the rest of it this morning. So we're continuing our series through Peter's first letter to these Christians who are living in what is now modern day Turkey. And his goal throughout the letter is to encourage them to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's what we hear at the very end of the letter in verse 12 of chapter 5. Stand firm in the true grace of God amid the increasing social and cultural pressures to give up their loyalty and love that they had given to King Jesus. And when Peter addresses these Christians again here in chapter 2 verse 11 as those who are beloved... And as those who are sojourners and exiles within the fallen human cultures of this world, he summarizes all that he has covered so far in this letter concerning Christian identity. We are, as Christians, chosen exiles. That's how he begins his letter. Chosen by God, we belong to him. We are his spiritual house and his holy and royal priesthood. We saw that last week. We've been born again into God's kingdom, born through the second birth, which means that a massive change has taken place in our lives. We've been transferred, this is the language of Paul from Colossians, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Yet, we still live among the fallen human kingdoms and cultures that are held in bondage to the kingdom of darkness. That is the flesh, the world, and the devil. This is language that we use throughout our liturgies. Hopefully it's not unfamiliar or scary to us. And this is the reality for us as Christians. And this reality for us as Christians produces attention. There are always going to be ways that we fit in with the culture around us. And there are also going to be ways that we no longer fit in with the culture around us because of that, that transformation that's taken place when God, by his true grace, brings us out of darkness and into light. And this tension is produced because our identity as those beloved by God, chosen by him to be his temple, the, the, the center of his work and presence in this world, and his priest, those who are meant to represent him to the world, this tension is produced because of our identity as God's chosen temple and priest in this fallen world, because this requires that we abstain from acting upon the twisted and disordered desires of our fallen flesh. As, as Peter said in the second sermon in a series that Father Kelly preached, it requires holiness. Be holy, 
for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But what does Peter have in mind here of abstaining from these fallen desires? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, he identifies malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander as actions that arise from these fallen, twisted desires. And then also ahead of us in chapter 4, verse 3, Peter further identifies debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and idolatry as actions that flow similarly from disordered human impulses. Why then abstain? It seems to be working out pretty well for my neighbors. I mean, of course, they would have asked this question themselves because things were, were not going smoothly for themselves. Well, because Peter recognizes that these twisted and disordered desires are conducting what he describes as a military operation with the intent of sabotaging true life and flourishing within you and within me and within human cultures throughout this world. You see, these twisted desires are part and parcel of the fallen world system within the kingdom of darkness that enslaves humanity. This is the clear, this is the clear teaching from Genesis 3 up to this point. And if we live by these, these disordered impulses, they will enslave and deform us. That's why, that's why Peter speaks with such urgency and force in verses 11 and 12. You can hear it in his voice. Beloved, I urge you with everything I have in me, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What you do in your body matters for the full depth of reality. I urge you to keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Those are the unbelieving folks who have not given love or loyalty to Jesus. I urge you to keep your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you, when, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when Christ returns. This is what the true grace of God looks like in action within our lives, abstaining from twisted and disordered impulses and desires and keeping our conduct honorable among those who have not given their love and loyalty to King Jesus. And with this, with these two verses, Peter shifts from a focus on Christian identity to how we are now to act and behave within and in relation to human cultures and societies and to individuals that have not given their allegiance to Jesus by faith. How do we now live? This is who we are, beloved by God, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. You are children of God. He has chosen you. You are precious living stones that he is building into a spiritual house. You are royal and holy priesthood. You are a people who did not know mercy. Now you know mercy. You are not a people, but now you are a people. You are a new race, not known by anything like your parents or your skin color, but only by God's favorable disposition to you. This is who you are. Now, this is how you live. This is how you live. This is Peter shifts his focus now to talk about how we are to act. But why does he do this? Is Peter falling back into some kind of Jewish legalism? 
every minute part of your life needs to be detailed by someone telling you what to do? I don't think that's the case here. For Peter, as people chosen by God to be a spiritual house and his holy priesthood, living in cultures that have not given their love and loyalty to God, our greatest challenge is to conduct our lives with holiness. Right? Holiness is that quality of God that it becomes ours because we've been identified with him. And that's the hardest thing is for us to conduct our lives in this world that's contested. It's hard for us to remain holy because we still have those disordered desires and passions and impulses pulsing through us. Those are still the knee-jerk reactions we have to act towards others. So our greatest challenge is to conduct our lives with holiness, to live out the way of life of God's kingdom that conforms with his will and character. So in the remainder of our lesson this morning from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, Peter shows us what it means to live holy lives in the midst of a culture and a society that is increasingly hostile to those who give their ultimate love and allegiance to Jesus. And when I say give ultimate love and allegiance, I mean that, that that giving of Jesus our love and our allegiance has transformed our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our principles, our, our values in this world. It, it affects how we act. It affects how we live and how we think. This is another way Paul describes this in, in chapter 12 of Romans as being having our minds transformed so that we can become living sacrifices in our lives, not just some ethereal kind of privatized religion, but no, Paul sees a transformation of our minds affecting a life that's given to God in its totality as a sacrifice. So Peter does this, his focus on living, he does this by focusing on three domains of human life, where the Christians to whom he was writing were suffering unjustly because of their allegiance to God. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, he shows how Christian citizens of this point in the Roman world are to conduct themselves when unjustly treated by human government for their love of Jesus. Then in verses 18 uh, through 25 of chapter 2, Peter presents the way Christian slaves are to conduct themselves when they are treated unjustly because of their allegiance to God by their masters. And then finally, the one we all love, in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he shows how Christian spouses and particularly Christian wives married to unbelieving husbands are to conduct themselves when treated unjustly for their loyalty to Jesus. Now, why were they being untreated unjustly? Because they're living out a completely different culture than the one that they've previously considered home. Right? The father of a household determined the religion of that home. And can you imagine the difficulty it was for a woman who came to Christ in that time to say, I'm not going to offer any more incense or sacrifices to the family cult here in the house. I'm not going to lead our children in prayer to these false gods. Can you imagine how difficult it was for Christian slaves who were no longer able to engage in all the things that they were asked to do, whether it was part of religious practices or whether it was a part of the freeborn men who owned them who could take whatever license he wanted with their bodies.
or those Christian citizens who no longer would respect or, or offer homage or worship to the Roman emperor. Can you imagine how they were treated unjustly, how they were shamed in their social settings for the commitment that they had made here? In each of these domains, Peter identifies those Christians who were the most vulnerable. And we are to take that their example is true for all of us. And in each of these situations, Peter says that when Christians are unjustly treated because of their allegiance to Jesus, their response is, and this is going to be really difficult for us to hear and to swallow, their response is to be, look at verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And the word their institution is actually somewhat misleading. It kind of abstracts the idea here. The word is actually referring to human beings, those who occupy those roles within a given order uh, of authority. Be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even to the emperor Nero, who was the emperor at, at this time, who was no friend of Christians. Verse 18, servants. The word there isn't a normal word for slave. It's the word for a household servant. Servants, slaves, be subject to your masters. Verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. What Peter identifies as Christian response, as the Christian response to unjust suffering, is nearly impossible for us to hear and receive as 21st century Westerners living in the United States. Because doesn't this sound a lot like a religious baptizing of an oppressive system and an abusive status quo? You see, what Peter sets off, what Peter says here sets off all the alarms we have to so many of our valued and cherished and sacrosanct values within our culture. The alarms are setting off that they're being transgressed by Peter here. For example, the value of freedom from anything that would that we consider to be constraining, to be oppressive, whether it's big government, folks on the right, sorry, or, or whether it's male headship in marriage, folks on the left, sorry, where Peter is an equal opportunity offender here. All these human institutions that we believe constrain us in some way and are therefore oppressive Peter says we have to subject ourselves to them. But don't we have a right to be free? To be free from? Well, Peter pokes this value. He pokes this idol. Now, you might have heard in the reading that we are indeed free, but it's not freedom, it's not freedom from so much as it is freedom for God in this world. And that freedom for God places constraints on our behavior because true freedom isn't just libertarian freedom to do whatever the heck I want, that works out really great. That works out really great in a world when everybody does whatever they want. The true freedom is freedom for God, and that requires us to be subject to his law. Now, it isn't the case that Peter is calling Christians to go along with an oppressive and exploitive status quo to support it. That's not exactly what they're doing at all. It's actually quite the opposite. And he is calling them to a way of life that subtly over time will transform it. As we'll come to see, and as we know from history, indeed, that is what happened. 
Keep in mind that oppressive and exploitive circumstances and situations and systems within fallen human cultures and societies are products of humans and human systems acting out of those twisted and disordered desires that Peter has called us to abstain from. Yet as God's people, yet as God's people, his holy nation and royal priesthood, we are called to live a life that abstains from them, a life that is markedly different in its outward appearance. And this is important because even those God-ordained institutions, such as human government and marriage, can be distorted, as we all know too well. Can be distorted and twisted when people are when people who are over them are given over to those twisted desires and human and, and, and misdirected and disordered impulses. Our conduct then is to bear witness. Our conduct then is to bear witness to another way. One that doesn't enslave or deform, but rather leads to true life and flourishing and freedom. And when we do so, we can expect a reaction because these twisted desires and, and the fallen world system that they participate within do not want to lose any ground in our lives and the lives of others and in the cultures that are held captive by them. And this brings us to the beating heart of this passage that governs the Christian response to unjust suffering. Look with me at chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. This is the gravitational center of what Peter is talking about. For to this you have been called. Your vocation is to endure these sufferings and be subject to those who are perpetrating them to you. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered in the same way for you. Leaving you not only salvation, but then also in an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. We've already heard that's a part of the flesh. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return not acting out of the twisted desires. When he suffered, he did not threaten in return, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter calls Christians suffering unjustly for the sake of Jesus to practice what we could call cruciform submission. Cruciform submission. That is submission that conforms to the example of the cross of Jesus. And I'm not going to offer a ton of qualifications in this sermon because Peter doesn't. But I do want you to know this doesn't mean that you have to stay in relationships that are abusive. There are means in our society for addressing them. Legal recourse. This doesn't mean that Christians don't take the legal recourses available. Unfortunately for those in the first century, there was no legal recourse for many of them. Cruciform submission. You see, Jesus suffered unjustly for his allegiance to God the Father. He came preaching and living a different way of life, one not enslaved to twisted human desires. And the dark forces of this fallen world system lashed out at him to silence him. And when the social and religious shaming did not deter him, 
when he did not respond to their reviling in like manner, showing himself to be a fraud, they beat and crucified him. Yet even then he did not threaten in return. Rather, on the cross he called out to his father not to send down fire, but to forgive them. So to be subject in situations of unjust suffering means we are to follow the example of Jesus, the crucified king. And I'm not pretending that that's easy. Because when someone slaps me, I want to slap them back. When someone reviles, my knee-jerk reaction is to revile in return. If I feel threatened, I at least want to show that I have a defense (laughs) ready for them. Those are our natural knee-jerk reactions. But Peter is saying for Christians, all of life must run through the cross. All roads lead to the cross. The cross of King Jesus gives shape and meaning to our honorable conduct within this fallen world. It gives shape and meaning even to our suffering. And in essence, Peter is saying, if we are going to suffer, let it be for the sake of following Jesus and not because we're acting out of disordered human desires. Don't suffer because you're telling lies. Don't suffer because you're a jerk. Suffer for the sake of Jesus if you're going to suffer. So live honorably among those who do not believe and who have not given their love and loyalty. If you're going to suffer social shame or even legal action at the hands of human government, let it be because of our allegiance to King Jesus that requires us to opt out and oppose some of the most important values and agendas within our culture and not because we're aimlessly defiant or seditious. That strikes some of us to the heart. If we're going to suffer shame or ridicule at work, that's the most analogous thing to slavery. If we're going to suffer shame and ridicule at work, let it be because we have given our love and loyalty to King Jesus, and as a result, we can affirm or participate in some of our company's values or social social agendas, and not because we're lazy or dishonest or difficult to work with. If we're going to suffer shame or ridicule within our families, let it be because of our love for Jesus that holds us back from participating in certain activities or giving affirmation to certain choices that our family members make. And not because we're unloving or vindictive or harsh or deceitful. Christ Church, please listen. When we practice cruciform submission to unjust suffering, when we endure social shaming and marginalization in society at large, in our workplaces, and at times even in our own families for the sake of Jesus, we become living icons, living icons offering God's presence in those places and to those people. We become priests, imaging forth the presence of God in his world. This is how we fulfill our priestly calling, by following the cruciform way of Jesus. It should be no surprise, for isn't it Jesus himself who said to us, what is the life of the disciple? Daily picking up our cross and following after Jesus. And when we practice cruciform submission, we are participating in and extending Jesus' redemption of the world. 
For this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. The implication then is when we practice cruciform submission to unjust suffering, then we are suffering for those who inflict that suffering on us, just as Jesus suffered our infliction. And in doing so, we reveal and bear witness in that moment the presence of Jesus in our lives and in this world. This is in part why Peter can call upon Christian wives to practice cruciform submission to unbelieving husbands so that perhaps they may be one to Christ. This is not a call for Christian wives or for anyone for that matter to endure physical abuse without recourse when there are especially legal means for doing so. Remember, Peter is largely addressing those who are facing social shaming and marginalization, though physical suffering is certainly acknowledged as a possibility for the slave and maybe even for others here in the letter. Don't miss Peter's point, though, for these other things that throw off alarms. Don't miss his point. Our practice of cruciform submission to unjust suffering makes Jesus Christ and his kingdom known. It makes him present wherever we are and to whomever we interact with. And his presence can bring healing and salvation, forgiveness and reconciliation, joy and true life. Look at verse 12 there quickly with me. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we give our deepest love and our whole person loyalty to King Jesus, when we follow his pattern of cruciform submission, his pattern of unjust suffering, and the refusal to retaliate, we are doing good work. Good work. And these good deeds will slowly, as time goes by, help those who do not know the one true and living God to see him, to know him, and to come to glorify him themselves, Lord willing, before the day of visitation, when God's knowledge of God then is one of wrath and judgment. And this is exactly what happened in the early church, isn't it? Do we know our history? Do we know our family stories? Almost a century after Peter wrote this letter, Justin Martyr would testify to the evangelistic appeal of such cruciform submission. Listen to his recounting. This is in his dialogue with Trifo. It is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us. For throughout all the world, we have believed in Jesus. It is clear that although beheaded and crucified and thrown to wild beasts and fire and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But the more such things happen, the more do other persons and in larger numbers become faithful believers and worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. Y'all, this is hard. This is hard. The church in many regards is a place where we all we gather, offer our praise and worship to God, but it's a place where he forms us to be martyrs. What God calls us to here is beyond us. It's beyond every single one of us to practice under our own power. 
The only way we can live and practice this cruciform submission is found there in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We can practice cruciform submission when we entrust ourselves and our families and our church completely to the loving care of the good shepherd and overseer of our souls. We entrust ourselves completely to the one who is the just judge, as Jesus did there in verse 23. We are under the care of the great and good shepherd, and he will lead us through any dark and deathly valley that may lay ahead with his rod to protect and his staff to guide us through. Flock of God, stand firm in the true grace of God, entrusting your whole selves to the just judge and to the good shepherd, and may God's name be glorified now and at the time of visitation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.